0: This is the Roaring of Podcast for the 30th of June, and I'm joined by the person that's my inspiration, always keeping my toes and giving me inspiration for, for funny things to say, so I'm not going to this time. Here's Dave. Hello. How's the weather treating you?
1: Uh, there is some. It is nice. <laughs> <laughs> not much more to say about it, really. <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is one of the advantages of doing an interview with an external guest, because we had a guest again, uh, we have a guest again, I should say, this episode, we've got uh, Richard Knuckles, who is going to talk to us about some uh, data engineering, more particularly on the Microsoft Azure front, to be honest, but it should be applicable more broadly than that, and uh, actually, this was also um, a request from one of our patrons, who requested uh, we do something around uh, data engineering pipelines, so hopefully... uh, Dear patron, you know who you are, this uh, will at least uh, somewhat answer the request you had for us here.
1: Indeed, indeed. Hopefully this, uh, I mean, you have spent some, some time behind the Azure curtain, as it were. Mm. Uh, so, useful and interesting to have uh, someone else's perspective.
0: Yeah and maybe g- note uh, note to say that uh, Richard isn't actually a Microsoft or Azure employee he's an external person from Azure Microsoft but who has worked with the environment for a long time and from his experience has written a book which is available through Manning Publications and uh, as always when we do these book reviews we might possibly maybe have something for our listeners uh, Stay tuned. That's all I want to say right now. So, unless you have anything else to add? No, let's get to it. Let's go to Richard and have all the Azure data. Sharing. Goodness, fabulous.
1: So, we are joined by our special guest this week, uh, Richard.
2: Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Dave. Hi, Richard. Happy to be here today.
1: Yeah, great to have you. So Richard uh, joins us as an author of the the book Azure Data Engineering. Um, and uh, Richard, tell us tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, I'm a Microsoft technologist. I've been working in IT for well a couple of decades now, and I started out on Windows and did a lot of work with. Servers and networking equipment and then uh, started development work, uh, building websites and database apps and all sorts of stuff back when VB was still the, the primary language to use. And the last few years, maybe a decade or so, I've been doing uh, website development and, and work in Azure, and that really brought me to the really the subject, the field of uh, data engineering and uh, working in the cloud.
1: So you've actually been you've been in this in this industry, you know, from times really before cloud, and you've seen the the whole the whole evolution of the journey so far. How how has that like what's the your experience been like uh, in IT? Kind of working through that
2: whole. Well, for any of us who've been with it for a while, we've seen a lot of server-based stuff with a lot of desktop-based stuff and applications moving from the desktop to the server. And I think the evolution of cloud space is moving from your server to somebody else's server and trying to get all of those things that you had to manage yourself, whether it was desktop or the server infrastructure, now moving it to letting someone else manage that stuff for you so you can just focus on supporting your users and having your application do what you want it to do. Yeah.
1: So specifically, as we talk about um, Azure Data Engineering, you know, why 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 this book? What why did the, the particular topic uh, speak to you?
2: Well, I was actually tapped at my last company to develop a, a new analytic system. We were faced with an upgrade for an industry standard reporting system called Counter, and we had been frustrated with some of the limits of our current analytics process and system. You know, the things like running out of space on a monthly basis or (laughs) running out of a, a time window to get everything processed. So we took this opportunity to develop both the expertise and the applications and the process to move this first uh, step of analytics processing out to the cloud. We really wanted to get more exposure and more systems and more familiarity in the cloud space. And because we're a Microsoft job at uh, that job, we were doing Azure work. We were putting our first stuff up into Azure putting our first clients into azure and seeing how that was going to impact the business
1: okay and so how i mean i, I guess that you did uh, some hunting around to see what else was already on the market how does how does this book kind of um, differentiate itself from anything else that may look similar
2: on the on the outset well, you know, a lot of the content that's out there on data engineering and cloud-based large data processing systems is Hadoop-based, is Apache stack-based, is designed around either for or targeting the data scientist who mm-hmm. knows how to write algorithms, knows how to write uh, queries in a language that they've learned, whether that's R or Python or or even SQL in some cases. So that's what the bulk of the industry is looking at. And I really wanted to write this book because I feel like Microsoft has a different take on what you can do in the cloud and what you can do to make large scale data processing and analysis easier for the end user whether that end user is actually the data scientist or uh, more of a novice analyst. And so coupling, coupling that desire to look at how Microsoft is doing it, looking how Microsoft has differentiated some of their offerings uh, in the proprietary space from the open source community uh, supporting analytics processing systems. That's, that was the thing that I wanted to write about to see, from the Microsoft technologist point of view, how you could build a system that was immensely scalable and just as powerful as anything you could build with, uh, you know, your Hadoop system or a Spark or stream uh, streaming anything you'd want with them on Apache software. How you could get that with mm-hmm. a, a a familiar interface and all the support of Microsoft Azure systems behind it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's yeah, all okay. a matter of choice, right? I mean, in the open source part is a it's a good part to walk, and a lot of people do it, but there is definitely also the part that's yeah built like the uh, Microsoft Azure using more, I'm not going to say commercial, but maybe, can I say traditional tools,
2: or is that a misnomer? I guess it depends on how long you've been working with Linux and the uh, and the Apache stack, Lamp stack, or whatever. So you've got you could you could have been working with that for the last you know, probably 15 years, I think. So you could have the, your traditional workspace was uh, web development on the Lamp stack, whereas if you're you could be a Microsoft developer or a, a Microsoft technologist and have been working on Windows, IIS, mm-hmm. SQL Server rather than uh, the open source stuff. So it's, it's definitely a choice whether you wanted to go with the open source or closed source, as it might have been for two a few years ago. Of course, Microsoft has really been adopting the open source technologies as mm-hmm. well and bringing their own enhancements and, and value add to that space. And I think you can see that in, well, the number of VMs you can bring on to an Azure VM, the number of uh, operating systems that are there available by default. Yeah, I mean, people know I've worked
0: at Microsoft Microsoft myself, and I would say that uh, Microsoft and Azure particularly has a, a good commercial stance towards open source. I mean, there are other clouds out there which I would never say have the same kind of integrity. <laughs> Not to mention any names. Anyway... Yeah, so I think you touched
1: on it um, sort of early on in in the the conversation. But who would you say that this um, this book is really targeted for? You know, who who will get the most value from reading this?
2: I'd say the person who gets the most value from this book is an IT administrator or a desktop developer or a, a web developer who's familiar with setting up a system and making sure that it runs consistently and efficiently and troubleshooting um, performance and sort of low-level uh, system work. It's not really designed for the data architect necessarily or the data scientist who's going to be really Bringing the most out of the data by understanding and querying it, and uh, really bringing the discoverability and value add for their work. It's it's about building the systems that support that uh, that data work.
1: So when we when we start to um, talk about the actual meat of the the book, obviously. When we talk about Azure Data Engineering, uh, how, how do you define
2: data engineering? Well, I define data engineering as the process of setting up a secure and performant and scalable system for storing and processing large amounts of data. Mm-hmm. It's pretty broadly that, applicable to whatever system you want to choose to build it on.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's not just a it's not just a a not just a role. It's not just a process. It's it's a combination of those things. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I'd say there's depending on how stratified your IT department is or who owns the the work of. Building and managing system infrastructure, you can have mm-hmm. data engineering separated across multiple roles. There's there's people who would set up infrastructure. There's people who would develop applications to work on the infrastructure. There's oftentimes the same person might be doing that, especially in in the cloud. So much of cloud systems are designed around being able to spin up on demand and hopefully spin down on demand and so Mm -hmm. you give a lot more of the traditional infrastructure maintenance and uh, spin up and uh, provisioning type of tasks over to the user who actually needs those resources when they need them
1: yep that makes sense so early on in the book, you you mention um, a paragraph about how Microsoft specifically uh, defines data engineering. So does on that, does, does Microsoft do things differently to anybody else? Or is that just a reflection of
2: how to do something within Azure? It's more of a reflection on how to do things in Azure that if you were building your system in a different cloud provider or even on your own on-premise sort of server setup, you'd likely build Linux VMs or you'd have infrastructure set aside to run a uh, Hadoop backend and a, uh, some sort of Apache software on the front end, whichever one would uh, make the most sense. It's, you could see, the the microsoft version of that in hd insight so it's it's a system for managing clusters of servers that run your queries for you and manage the storage on the back end so mm-hmm. for the microsoft way of doing it i i I think about it as they're not only restricted to a set your base cluster and you do it all they are adding in layers of management And abstraction, and also bringing their own uh, in house traditional, I guess, traditional uh, development processes and languages and technologies to this stack. So, recently, I'm sure we've heard about uh, Databricks, the acquisition Mm -hmm. of that by Mm -hmm. Microsoft. And so, there's yet another way Microsoft is bringing their particular way of. doing big data so you've got really un, you know low level cluster management at one end and if you want to go all the way to the other end you've got things like I describe in the book event hub stream analytics data lake analytics sql server and even sql data warehouse and other systems that allow you to do big queries and process and store all the data, either as a stream or as a batch. And so, yeah, you can really look at the Microsoft way of doing it is they've got a buffet of items you can choose. You can either get a set meal, you could get, you know, pick it as you wish and tie it together or have uh, really a a whole bundle put together for you. Yep.
1: So as we as we dive deeper down the rabbit hole, I will I will hand over to my uh, my technically minded Azure through and
0: through <laughs> colleague Jon. Oh, thank you very much for that uh, accolade, my dear. Um, you just mentioned HD Insight and and, uh, and Hadoop, and I noticed in the book that you do uh, cover it in, at the front, in the first chapters, but the rest of the book doesn't really touch Hadoop or HD Insight specifically anymore. Um,
2: Why is that? Well, I wanted to focus this book on, one, the things I was really knowledgeable about, the things I really cared about. And also, I wanted to make this really, in order to get it uh, tight enough and small enough of a segment (laughs) to write an entire book on, or only one book on, uh, I really needed to pick something... Small enough, and I was really interested in the Microsoft technology, the Microsoft technologist way of working. And if you're a Microsoft house, you typically use IIS, use a Windows Server, use SQL Server, and the idea of how does that translate into the cloud? How does the things that I, that you know how to do on your on-premise stuff? How how can you translate that into? something that you know how to do in the cloud. And if you're coming from a Microsoft shop that really doesn't run Linux, doesn't run Apache, doesn't run any of the other technologies and you've never, you've never programmed in Python, Mm -hmm. then you know about, maybe you know about ASP.NET or you know C sharp, you know, windows servers and SQL language. So, translating those skills into a a book that leverages those skills and allows you to get up to speed on doing the technology. I thought that was that was the main selling point for the book. No, mm-hmm. totally great there.
0: But for me, it also, I mean, if, even if you had included AC Insight and made the book much bigger that way, it also it doesn't really fit the way Microsoft is thinking about whole data engineering today. Because uh, I think you mentioned already, they're looking at more of a services layer, so making it easy to use and just make that pipeline. And AC Insight, um, for lack of a better word, it's always been a bit bit clunky. You were still it was presented as a SaaS service, but you still had to have. VMs and a cluster main maintain maintenance. You had to have, as you say, Linux skills to do that. And it never really gelled very well.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things Microsoft is both controversially brought to the party and uh, I think celebrated for is they, they give you a, a piece of software and it runs. Mm-hmm. If you do nothing else with it and you have no particular expertise, you can set this System up, whether that's a server or an application that's running on it, and it will run pretty good. You, if you're expert, you can get it to really run well. Mm-hmm. And also, if you're if you're doing things really uh, wrong, then you can get it to perform poorly. But <laughs> for the most part, right out of the box, it'll run pretty well. And you don't need if you've if you're familiar with one application, yeah. you can take a lot of that. Uh, knowledge on how to set stuff up and move it to another application from Microsoft. Yeah, okay. And that was, yeah, one thing I, I, I was really pleased with in my journey on Azure was using PaaS services, using SaaS services that let's, let's let Microsoft take care of the, the hardest parts for me. That might be, getting these systems to run in the background, getting them to scale in the background properly. And I'll I'll let their experts figure out how to make these things run best and or at least pretty good right out of the bat.
0: Yeah, I think that was the main hindrance for Microsoft. I mean, they were very early out of the gate with a Hadoop service, but the idea of people expecting a service and then ending up having to to, manage the whole cluster themselves after all, it really didn't didn't help for the adoption of it. But um, now we're talking about the whole SaaS pass and EOS um, controversy or whatever you want to call it. The the whole idea of uh, SaaS, why would I want to have a Microsoft or another company, doesn't really matter who it is, take that out of my hands? What's the benefits of of going SaaS? And what are the, the disadvantages perhaps?
2: Well... Having been called in the middle of the night for some <laughs> server not running, I really appreciate the leaving that mostly to Microsoft, knowing how to do no letting knowing that they know how to do the patches properly, that their patching process is going to have no downtime, that they can handle getting the new equipment in, that they can handle the any of the major networking outages, any of that stuff is taken care of, and I don't have to do that myself. I don't have to either worry about it or keep up with it outside of maybe I just see uh, an email that says, oh, yeah, we had an outage. Uh, you may have not have noticed. So that's that, I think, is one of the, the biggest benefits of having Microsoft take care of the the support for your PaaS and, and SaaS. If you're still building VMs in the cloud, I think you're you're not far enough along on your journey to cloud computing. And those whatever you're having to build that VM for, whether it's a third party application or one of your own legacy in house applications, then that's potentially a pain point that you have to manage you have to keep your it staff familiar with and keep the documentation up on and allowing moving up the stages of abstraction uh, lowers that overall cost for paying people it does come with a with a cost of paying microsoft mm-hmm. for that support but if you if you understand what you're paying for in that point with the more abstracted services, then you can make that ROI call and see if it's gonna be worth it for you. And you have to understand as well and research the benefits that you get with it, like Mm -hmm. on-demand scalability and, um, you know, no downtime uh, server failures or hardware failures. That type of backup and support stru- structure that you don't have to do yourself, support yourself, and uh, worry about keep you up at night. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean one of the things that you give up though, and it I, I guess again, depending on what kind of place you are, maybe this is less of a of a concern, but you're definitely by going with all of these embedded services, all these you know totally managed services, you're giving up. Um, any ability to migrate out of that, you know, any any form of, um, you know, anti in or anything like that, aren't you, for the most part?
2: Yeah, there's there's a certain point where you move into a, a tight dance with your vendor. And yeah. I think you could say a lot of the PaaS systems are maybe a sweet spot, for a lot of places. If you've got a VM, you are you can really take that um, image and move it move it around, rebuild it, especially if you've automated your setup for it, mm-hmm. spin it up on mm-hmm. another cloud provider pretty easily. If you're at PaaS, this is a platform as a service type of yep. uh, application, then you generally have some code, you have some development work, and that's a lot of where your investment's going to be. And if you... If you do it correctly then those things are you can you can take code that runs on an on-premise environment and move it with minor changes minor configuration to move, to run on a PaaS system or you can take the institutional knowledge of how do you write the code whether that's SQL code or C# code or some other type of programming language that runs in that PaaS service, and then break that out and reuse it uh, either as a node or some or a, you know a, a separate assembly in another system, which uh, is one of the the easiest ways if you wanted to change vendors for your cloud solution. Once you've gone to SaaS, your assets, the things that matter are no longer the software it's the data that's running behind them and Mm -hmm. the configurations Mm -hmm. and those i think if you if you're if you're moving all the way to sas you need to know about what what is the data storage what's the data availability and what's the what's the data uh, extract or export that you could expect if you wanted to change yeah that that sort of goes along with a lot of software that you're installing whether it's you mm-hmm. know it's salesforce or atlassian or other yeah. you know you can get things that you're going to be using and building up value from your from your internal users or your external users and if you ever needed to change that vendor how are you going to get that data out of that system it's the same type of considerations come when you're when you're building a a SaaS system or building a a new supporting process in, in a SaaS service.
0: Yeah, also with more and more things becoming SaaS services, they become more interchangeable as well. And to be honest, that's always been a bit of an issue because even in the early days, if I decided to write my program in C or in COBOL, I did a quote-unquote quote, vendor lock to that language. I couldn't easily port it over either. Of course, that's a lot less, more, more low down, less higher abstraction layer. But more and more, I can see I see that even SaaS services are getting to a point that okay, if SaaS service A, like a Salesforce, doesn't do what I wanted to do, as long as I can get to that data, and that's a very important point. You you pointed out there. I can move over to dynamics. I mean, it does the same thing with the same type of data in a different way. And uh, there will be a, a migration curve, uh, uh, an effort to do that. But if I wanted to recode in the 80s my code from C to COBOL, which I shouldn't ever do, <laughs> that would also incur <laughs> effort on my yeah, part. Probably, so, that's
2: probably the wrong way to go.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I liked COBOL. I, I, I did good in school with COBOL. Anyway, uh, (laughs) uh, one other thing that kind of got to mind when when we were talking about this, is uh, when I was at Azure, I spent a lot of time getting people across the chasm from on-premise to cloud. And cloud maturity is a very important thing when you go into SaaS, because you were talking about the benefits of how when Microsoft is doing the service for me and it's down, I don't have to care, they will fix it, and they'll fix it probably faster than I ever could, and it'll be up and running again. But those people that are just moving to cloud now, the moment something goes down, they feel totally helpless, they feel they need to want to do something and they can't because, well, it's a SaaS service and you just decided not to want to do that anymore. But when it's down, it's very hard to get people to let go, let's say, of that responsibility. On the one hand, they're paying for that to make someone else responsible for that thing, but they still want to keep it locally. And a lot of times when a cloud provider has a downage, they have downtime from time to time, nothing is perfect. You see all of this, I was almost say vitriol in the chat, uh, chat rooms or uh, hacker, whatever, hack news. use. Uh, That maturity, we're getting there, but we're still not there, I think. There's still a lot of people struggling with that.
2: Yeah, there were were times that I've been working on a system going into Azure and there's been a problem. Either I can't figure out why this performance is not meeting my expectation, or I don't know why this system keeps showing signs of restarting. And having a... I could say there was a learning curve in knowing how to fix something myself and knowing how to talk to a Microsoft representative and the Microsoft um, service tech and a Microsoft manager in order to either escalate or find what was the status of, of my report, my ticket. And that's, I think until you get some comfort level with that, there's always going to be a some trepidation around when, when the SAS product, when even the past product is not performing as you want that, what am I going to do now that I don't have any, there's nobody I can walk down the hall to talk to and uh, lean over their shoulder and pressure them. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's would you see. say
0: that having a partner, a kind of uh, implementation partner or something in between Microsoft and you as an end user or me as an end user, it, does that help? Is that beneficial? Is it the poison sword?
2: I don't really know. I've not had to deal with mm-hmm. third parties in there myself, so I would say I always liked depending on my IT department. To support some of the low-level infrastructure things, and mm-hmm. when I needed to do that myself, whether it was reaching out to Microsoft or actually getting onto a server to do patching or uh, troubleshooting, that that wasn't the most fun part for me. <laughs> so, I think having having somebody who, whether that you know a third-party vendor or knowing your way around the the Microsoft reps and service tech. Uh, discussion is, can can go a long way if they know how to communicate well, if they know how to do the customer support and service portion of their job really well, then that's actually a huge benefit to having some, uh, somebody in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not to play the blame game, but just to
0: have somebody show you the ropes basically, and with a bit of luck, after it's gone a couple of rounds, you can start taking more on yourself and cut out the middle mine at a certain point, perhaps.
2: Yeah, I think that it's possible when people are thinking about or when businesses, companies are thinking about their migration to the cloud, that when they run into that first outage, when they've given up any control, that it's possible they didn't have, maybe they were lulled into a false sense of security, mm. that they didn't need to plan disaster recovery or business continuity around the use of that product and maybe their maybe their plans were really strong and uh, well managed and, and executed when they had the system on premise but when they moved to the cloud they didn't have a fallback plan or there was no real fallback plan and it wasn't communicated to the business leaders that this this system will will either save this amount of money, we'll save this amount of support time, or it'll bring us these benefits, but we also don't have this in the case of an outage, or Mm -hmm. our plan for an outage is to put up this and not do anything on this system for X number of hours. It's Planning for disaster recovery and business continuity for these SaaS systems is, I think, a very important Piece of planning your move to the cloud, and it's something that can't be solely relied on for or to be done by the IT department or you know the the technical group that's doing the migration. It needs to have business Mm buy-in and support from the business to know how much does it cost for downtime. What's what's the acceptable response?
0: Yeah, I was saying it's very important for people that do the move to the cloud, and definitely for, for data projects, which can come, become very big and very important, having a, a good conversation on the technical business and all, all levels, basically, before doing it is very important, because a lot of people think, I'm having problems with my on-premise thing, I'll go to the cloud, and now it's all solved, because now the cloud is magic. That's not how it works. It has pluses, and and it has pros and cons. Everything has pros and cons. You just have to make sure that you know what you're getting into at the beginning, and it's not bad, it's not good, it's just a tool, and if the tool is used correctly with enough knowledge and experience, it'll be a good tool. If you just give a hammer to a baby, he's going to hurt himself.
2: Yeah, I think that's... uh, The the question of hurting yourself when it comes to your, your cloud implementations is one, cost, and two perhaps lack of a fallback for any type of outage. So Mm -hmm. those are absolutely things that need to come from the business driver rather than the technology driver. Now,
0: in your book, I was happy to see a chapter on calculating the cost of cloud hosting. (laughs) So uh, I'm pretty sure our listeners are interested to know how they should look at that because even in my rather good experience, I would say. I would find it hard to predict how much a cloud migration or deployment will actually cost in the end. How do you uh, go that from, from experience?
2: Yeah, actually, a lot of the chapters have portions of them devoted on how much will this system cost or how much will a particular bit of usage cost and how do you balance what you're going to get with what you're going to spend. Mm-hmm. It does vary based on what the services. Some services are pay for use, which is if you have a lot of use, they're going to be more expensive. So you need to know how much value is the system use going to bring for every single bit of use, whether it's a penny or a you know, a fraction of a penny. Some systems are costing you all the time whether they're in use or not. So Dealing with the budget for those is actually a lot easier because you're going to pay by the month or maybe you're going to buy a year's worth of capacity there. But you need to know actually what's your expected level of usage out of that. What what capacity do you need to support your use case, your usage level? So those calculating those like for a SQL Server or um, an analysis product are... Look at what you've got now, do some test runs with some data, and extrapolate from there to get what, where do you need to scale your system to, what uh, amount of processing do you need, or where are you going to leave that level for day-to-day, or week-to-week, or month-to-month. So those are easier to calculate, but they need a bit of upfront uh, work to figure out what your levels are going to be. And then there are some services that are just absolutely free and some services that have both free levels and paid levels and you want to determine what's the feature set at the paid level and can i get by with the free level because it's free because it's it's a way to get you on the system and it's Actually, so commodity-based that it's really inexpensive for Microsoft to provide that service. But the paid level brings more features, and it might be that a feature like uh, geo uh, geo replicated systems, which prevents some downtime, might be a reason to go with the paid level of the of that service. If you you could also look at calculating for storage costs storage is not the in a lot of systems is not the biggest cost Mm -hmm. but in a data analysis system it's it actually starts to to build up when you've got multiple you know petabytes of, of data sitting out there you do need to have some consideration of what's the turnaround time for accessing that data or what's the longevity of that data am i going to need it in a year or am i going to need it in 10 years and the storage systems in particular are things where you can you have to estimate what's my usage going to be what's the what's the growth in usage month over month or year over year so there's there are numerous steps in order to find how much is the system going to cost me and those actually can change as a forecast over time as both usage and adoption and volume change. Is that a generic enough answer for you? No, no, that
1: was good. I, I certainly have uh, my favorite one, but w- which, is, which is the one that uh, you usually find people don't accurately factor in when they're first thinking about this?
2: Yeah, I've seen a couple of examples of a software that a vendor will come in or a you know a, a Microsoft support a consultant will bring in and install on your premises servers and you know model your data usage for a week or a month and then present you with this is the cost of shifting it all to the cloud that that sort of lift and shift calculation is probably fairly mm-hmm. Reliable, but also fairly scary, mm-hmm. from what I've seen. Mm. They, those, the, the cost, apples to apples between what you have on premise and what you have in the cloud. The cloud tends to be rather more expensive, but also because yeah. of all the features it brings, like the redundancy in the background and the management. Yeah, uh, and the, you know all the, all of that stuff that Microsoft provides. The, yeah. The stuff the one... I go over in the book is a lot different than that type of uh, estimation. These are much more about finding finding the data sizes and finding the frequency and growth potential of your data, and the and the amount of traffic you need for analysis and uh, calculations.
1: Yeah, I was going to say the one thing that I. I i usually find people end up somehow forgetting along the way is is that that network traffic in some way shape or form either they they forget about the amount of usually it's the amount of egress traffic that they'll end up having to pay for obviously you know ingesting ingesting data into a cloud is usually free or incredibly cheap it's uh, it's getting data out again that that tends to be the expensive side of things and people I still see people forgetting to factor that in quite as completely as maybe they should. They usually think about it in a in a holistic sense and they think, oh, yeah, this is all going to be fine and wonderful. Then they forget that they have all of these other systems that maybe still don't live in that same uh, cloud environment and they'll have to end up shuffling data backwards and forwards to them.
2: Yeah, one of the nice things... Uh, the IT department in my last company did was they set up an express route mm-hmm. with our on-premise, so we had we had that data pipeline guarantees we could go up and down uh, on demand. So that that actually was a nice thing to have. I don't know how many companies are going to invest in something like that, but it might be might be something that a lot of companies want to think about. For I haven't actually. Look to see can you actually use uh, what is it uh, data disk or data what is it data bucket? There's a there's a system you can get from Microsoft mm. that's a, a stack of disks that allow you to put I think maybe it's a petabyte now or maybe it's a couple of petabytes on on the stack of disk and ship it through UPS back to their data center and load the data in. I don't know if you can request your data ship back to you on one of those.
0: Um, as far as I know, no, you can't. <laughs> and the problem is also that they don't have many of those. Actually, there are a couple of per region, and if you want to use that one, you need to have a lot of data. You really have to need it, and it doesn't really speed things up either, because there's a lot of steps going in between between the disks actually being sent to you, the data loading onto it, and data offloading it into the data center. It takes a lot of. It takes. You have to think months. Not don't think it's a couple of weeks. <laughs> And so they really prioritize getting data in and not data out. Sorry, no doubt. (laughs) Um, uh, Dave, you are finished with that line of uh, question? Cool. Because I want to go back to that cloud maturity thing again, because one of the things that I notice a lot is when people think about the costs and they give their people, their data scientists, data engineers, a service that's pay-as-you-go, it's the with great power comes great responsibility thing. <laughs> people find freedom, they can just do things and nobody is looking at the pricing anymore. And that sometimes gives, uh, at the end of the month or the end of the quarter, a big bill without anybody having kept an eye on that. And when I had dealt with customers, I always made sure that from the start, make sure you keep an eye on what people are expensing, uh, spending money on. And if it's really worth something, because as you already mentioned, uh, Richard, If you do stuff, make sure it has a value. I mean, just doing it for fun doesn't work in business. But still, a lot of people were kind of surprised in the end how much cloud they actually were using per month or per day or per week, whatever they were counting on. And yeah, of course, there's a bill paid for that as well. And that was a bit of also cloud maturity that they were used to buying things now with a big spend. We spend a billion dollars now for the whole infrastructure and now we kind of use it for free. Well, we're still paying it off probably, but there's no incurred cost when you use the thing. And in the cloud, of course, it's totally different. That makes it very hard to predict the costs because basically people don't really know what they're going to, be, what they are going to be doing with the stuff that they're getting in house at that point?
2: Yeah, i I know that very well myself, <laughs> having having run a having had a request to get this data out of the system, and knowing there was no real other way besides running through, you know, a couple of terabytes of data, just running it through, and at the end of the month you know, somebody else who was in charge of billing saying, why did I have this, you know, several hundred dollar bill on here when, you know, the thing was, the thing's brand new. Why is it, you know, why is this bill <laughs> coming up? Uh, I was like, well, nobody said what the maximum cost of running this query for for this particular um, ask was. So I went ahead and, and pushed your button <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> To see what you know, what what are you expecting in terms of monthly usage, in terms of cost, and to try to to push forward the conversation of there can be costs associated with every request that comes from the business, and the business needs to know that when they ask for things, sometimes they should put boundaries on how much they want to spend because that's how much the value is yeah so it's, that it's, that part of maturity is is a, a pretty good thing is is putting in boundaries for what you ask and what you're wanting to, what you wanting to spend because of the the value. So let's see. there was something else I was gonna say about that. What was the second part of your question, John? I have no idea.
0: I just talk and I forget what I say the moment I say it. That's just how I think. <laughs> but that's okay. I got the right. no, I, I, I think I was I think that was pretty good
1: because the so when you're going through this cycle like how I'm kind of curious now like when people are having these questions or having these conversations how much do you think people think ahead of time on the uh, like this is going to cost a certain amount and like someone who you know knows the detail about the project will say yeah that's absolutely fine but like someone else who's maybe the the, the overall project owner and budget holder and things like that might have a very different view. How, how often do you think those two views are closely synchronized and how often do you think they're kind of wildly, um, wildly apart?
2: Yeah, I think that gets to the, the second part of Jan's question was cloud maturity and the, the shift in mindset from purchase and then negligible expense for usage versus pay for usage with negligible expense for purchase. That that shift from, we already paid for the infrastructure, so do whatever, to everything that I ask for, everything that I want to have done, has a cost and should have a value. If you're running it as a business and you're wanting a return on your investment for all of these systems that you're building and running, then the business absolutely needs to have both visibility and understanding into what they're asking for and what the cost implications of that are. And I think that's a big part of the move to a a maturity when using a cloud service. Like I said, there's lots of different ways you can go about costing or paying for the provision service, depending on what type of service it is. But these types of discussions actually really need to happen pretty early in your Mm -hmm. move to the cloud is to get that understanding of it's going to be in some ways pay for use. And we need to understand how much we're going to be using and what we're going to be asking for. That type of discussion probably needs to come from from business drivers yeah. going through, you know, like your chief technology officer or uh, something like that, to the specialists or the third-party consultants who can advise, so that the business knows that this is a cloud system. So it has a different costing structure and a different um, use perhaps than a previous system would have, or the CTO or a, a director of, of a particular division needs to know budget shifting from here to here, or this is going to change the, the budget requests that we need for this next year in order to do this. So estimating becomes actually a very important part of budgeting, but in a totally different way than it was when you were buying your infrastructure for on-premise. Uh, quite, quite often they
0: forget there's an extra dimension coming in with cloud services. While on-premise, you kind of pay an amount of money to have a thing do a thing. In the cloud, you can pay an amount of money to do it, To have a thing do a thing at a certain speed or a certain performance. And uh, the deeper you push the gas pedal down, the more gas you'll be using, the more expensive it will be. And that's coming back to what you said. Always tell me, if you want to have something done, how soon do you want it? Do I take the, the the super charger charged system, whatever, and make it run across all cores, or can it take? Well, if it's done by Friday, it's fine. You can often, quite often, do it the same thing, slower, but on a much cheaper uh, end uh, end cost at the end. And that's something that the most business drivers they do these estimations. They don't even know that's possible if they're coming from an on premise uh, environment.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's goes to training for your your uh, employees who mm-hmm. are using the system who are asking for the system and the people who are driving the business use and it's actually one of the big benefits of having moving your system into the cloud yep if you've structured it properly or you're using a system that's designed from the from the ground up to be uh, scalable and mm-hmm. parallelizable and other things. There's uh, there's a good section, actually, with using Azure Data Lake Analytics in the book where I'm talking about estimations for a particular mm-hmm. job run and what goes into sort of a, cal- a base calculation of um, how much is it going to cost mm-hmm. from the from never having run it before and then also the estimation of how efficient do you want it to run because you could run it very efficiently it'll be the lowest cost possible but it'll also take the longest time or you can run it way up here and waste a bunch of money but it'll be done in the shortest amount of time so balancing that and sometimes it's worth the money to do it fast
0: Sometimes that's a business driver. Cool. We also talked about things like uh, business continuity. Uh, When you go to a cloud and you have your data in the cloud, you have your livelihood in the cloud, perhaps things like business continuity is also something you have to take care of at the beginning of your cloud journey, your data engineering setup in the cloud. How do you suggest people look at things like high availability and even uh, avoiding loss of data using uh, things like disaster recovery in a cloud environment, particularly in Azure Then,
2: Yeah, a lot of it, is done on a service-by-service service level. There's there's two things you really need to think about. What's the availability of the service and what's my data loss going to look like? What's my potential for data loss? And these two things are sometimes handled by the service themselves and sometimes need to be handled by you. A classic example would be storage, a storage service like uh, Azure Storage Blobs, where Microsoft is handling redundancy. They're handling, you know, three backups of, or three copies anyway, of every file that you put up there in the blob storage. But they have no backups to recover that data if somebody deletes it. They also have no recovery for it if, an entire data center was to be burned in a fire or something. So that service in particular, you can specify, yes, leave me the three local copies in the data center, but also replicate them to another data center. And that costs a bit more money or give me copies in a, another data center on the other side of the country that costs a little extra again. And, But you still aren't covered for a deletion event or a corruption event in the data that was going into there. So you actually need to set up a backup routine of your own in order to cover both disaster recovery, which is Microsoft gives you a menu to choose from of how much disaster you want to recover from, and a backup scenario, which Microsoft doesn't cover. But you have to to actually know when you're going to adopt that particular service that Microsoft will handle part of it, but I need to handle part of it. The I think you could say the opposite is true, or you get a different set of options when you're looking at something like SQL, SQL database. Microsoft handles the backups on those, mm-hmm. and they handle a certain amount of redundancy in the local data center. So you actually don't have to plan your backup routine. You don't have to worry about... Uh, the corruption or deletion uh, return of your data in that data-less scenario. And if you want, that system also allows you to do a uh, set of redundant servers in the local data center or across uh, across the country in a, in a separate uh, region in Azure. So that's that's a scenario where you can pay more to have them do more for you, Cover cover both of these scenarios: the the data loss and data corruption, and the disaster recovery. And of course, they're they're giving you the the business continuity portion of it, and saying this this database is up, you know, ninety nine percent, ninety nine point nine five or ninety nine point five percent their SLAs. Yeah. So I think I think it's those two things you have to know for really for each service is. What's the what's my data loss prevention strategy, and what's my uh, business continuity or disaster recovery coverage with this service? Yeah, that was just, I'm also a bit a
0: little bit disappointed. I mean, I, I have no idea how you might possibly do it, but taking if you go to Azure for everything, just give me a disaster recovery plan for everything, but no, you have to do it service by service. thing. And I know, I understand why, because most of these services are built on totally different backends, backgrounds, whatever. But still, it's it's always disappointing to me to see that, uh, and that's valid for any cloud provider out there, that don't have a kind of comprehensive, pay us X amount per month and we'll make sure you never lose data. For some reason, I haven't figured that one out yet. Yeah.
2: It's possible that Microsoft made the decision that that type of support would be a Microsoft Gold partner level or some other type of partner yep. network-provided uh, service. That possible. I, th- I think you could probably get that provided for you if you if you went through uh, some of
0: the other support yeah. partners out there. But then I have to talk to people, and I want to go to cloud, so I can only talk to
2: computers. Um. Well, I guess the… Uh, <laughs> I guess if, if I was setting out to design something that was really redundant and wouldn't have an outage more than a few minutes anywhere, it would probably be the entire system would be code-driven for provisioning and setup and then backed up in multiple regions and fronted by a lot of um Either load balancers or front door or something like that, so that I'd have uh, multiple endpoints that I could switch to really quickly to get uh, to get access to my data and my systems again. I think that's possible. And one of the things I actually did in the book was try to do as much in PowerShell as an example of a an automation uh, driver that you can use to build all these services. Yep. I saw that, by
0: the way. A lot of uh, examples, code examples in the book and really explanations of how to do things. It's not just a theoretical discussion on what possibly maybe something you could do. You actually give in the book step-by-step instructions on how to do most of the things. So that was quite nice to see that. Uh, by the way, I also just found out that uh, the, the disk thing that you can send uh, to Azure your Data to Azure is called a data box. They apparently are not uh, creative in naming.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, if you're looking at Azure, and I'm doing a data engineering in Azure, which of the services in the whole I mean, Azure has a lot of services and products available there? Which ones as a data engineer do I really need
2: to look at? Well, I think you really need to look at your storage level. You need to look at your data ingestion. You need to look at your uh, pipeline, your okay, data. Like your, data ingestion. And analytics process. How do data ingestion okay. in Azure? Well, I think you've got two ways. You're either shipping data in, which is typically to a blob store or something like that, either by you know, REST APIs or uh, some type of tool. Uh, Microsoft provides a couple of uh, console-level tools for copying data, or you could do a pull. Um, data Factory actually has several endpoints that it can connect to, FTP. Um, web endpoints and APIs and stuff, which and, uh, and also you know, databases straight up uh, connections, and you can pull data in that way, or you could get data in from streaming sources or real-time producing sources where you're not getting a batch of data or a bucket of data or a file of data. You're getting a data one piece at a time over time. So... I think your your main ingestion points are going to be something like a queue. Then that might be like you know actual actual queues, uh, like uh, storage queues in Azure storage accounts. Uh, you could do event hubs, which I'm a big fan of. The which are mm-hmm. high high throughput um, message stores, which uh, take in a lot of uh, individual data points. You can use Data Factory for automating your pulls of data from outside sources. Uh, if you wanted to look at storage, you've you've got a couple of options. the main The main option, if you're not going straight to a relational database like a SQL database, is you've got storage accounts, uh, blobs, and table stores, stuff like that, uh, and you've got Data Lake Data Lake Store, which there are actually two versions of now. You've got one that's based on sort of a, a lower-level Hadoop hierarchical system and one that's based on uh, sort of a Microsoft abstraction on that, which is in Data Lake Gen 2, which is uh, basically storage blobs with some hierarchy on them. So your storage is typically looking at those, and both of those have been built so that they... Uh, scale quite a lot and have a pretty good throughput for all that. Let's see. And there aren't a lot of systems if you're looking to do automated pipelines for processing things, for moving data around in and out of things. Data Factory is the biggest one for that. But you could also do something with SQL Data Warehouse or Synapse Analytics, I think is what it's called now where you, you're pulling data into uh, a big relational database and doing really your data work there.
0: Yeah, I hadn't heard about Synapse, Synapse Analytics. That's a new one. Just looking it up right now. It's the fun of doing something recorded all of live. <laughs> oh, yeah, I see. Yeah. Cool.
2: So that's the data warehouse
0: part of uh, analytics, yeah.
2: Yeah, if, if you were looking at it from, the, from an open source point of view, you, you might... Do something like Databricks as a, as a streaming endpoint, where you're looking at stream data coming in, or using it f- to convert files to a stream and then do stream processing there. But that's still just another another service for either having a data coming in or data processing in uh, on uh, file file level mm-hmm.
0: sources. Ah, no, the Synapse thing—is that the same thing as data lake analytics, or is something else?
2: No, it's—it's it's actually I'd call it a rebranding of SQL data warehouse. It's so possible that the, if you
0: what's yeah. data lake analytics then?
2: Data lake analytics is a analysis product designed to use the SQL language to query large data sets in parallel. And run the clustering of the that parallelized uh, query processing for you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, but it's a quite specific thing for
0: uh, Microsoft, right? I don't. Uh, I don't think the other clouds have something like that, like analytics.
2: Yeah, as far as I know, it's the closest thing you probably get is a Jupyter workbook on top of. Um, some type of Hadoop stack, Hadoop cluster, in that you can write SQL queries in that Jupyter notebook and have them translated into MapReduce queries. The it's, but it, data lake analytics works a lot differently than that. It's actually doing a compilation or a, it's building a program for doing both Map and Reduce. Algorithms in the background, but writing, translating SQL into what's basically a C# language, and running, running file imports and processing over those, and then doing calculations uh, row by row. Rather, it's, so it's it's rather different than the calculations you'd run to build a query and get data back in a relational database.
0: Okay. Well, for me, the version of the book that I was... Uh, yeah, I got a, a review copy from Manning Publications of the book so I could prepare for the interview. And this is where my up version ended. And there were a couple of chapters that were unfinished yet. Have you made any progress since uh, I downloaded it? It's been a couple of weeks ago.
2: Yeah. we're. I've finished all of the chapters for the book. It's going to the final review before publishing uh, just yesterday. And nope. <laughs> within the next few days, we should have uh, Chapter 12 and Chapter 13 up and available in the Meep. Okay, so by the time that this interview goes live, it should be in there. Can you tell us what's
0: going to be in those uh, chapters?
2: Yeah, the last, the last chapter is sort of a wrap-up, and I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. The Chapter 12 is doing data imports, and pulling data into SQL database. Chapter 11 was all about SQL database and the various flavors that you can get in Azure for that relational database. And then uh, chapter 12 goes into getting data from your analytics and Azure sources into that SQL database, whether it's pulling from other databases in Azure or from basically loading data from your any source that Data Factory can, can run. So Chapter 13 is, is a wrap-up chapter, and it's not introducing really new topics. It's covering some, some best practices and giving a, some next steps in your journey of building your data analytics platform. <laughs> Things like uh, governance, getting a, a data catalog, and making your data accessible. And how do you use source control to back up and uh, keep you know uh, a resilient copy of your development work that went into building your uh, data lake analytics or the, uh, the analytics system. Chapter 13 is about where to go next and building out governance and, specifically a data catalog describing the data so that makes the data in your analytics system available to users and also using source control to provide a a resilient backup for your development work that went into building the analytics system. One of the things I talk about all through the book is how to programmatically create these systems and provision them and update them and because almost all of it is, can be done with scripts and scripts plus configuration files mm-hmm. pretty much all of your setup for your system can be backed up and basically you have that in order to build a new system or add pieces to your system on at some future time and you also when using version control can get the Vision of change across time and figure out uh, if something worked before. Why is it not working today? That's the uh, that's the end of the book. And what's uh, what you can expect to see coming out? Cool.
1: So after after the book, obviously you you know, you, you mentioned that you're sort of very much a, a, an Azure uh, expert in many ways, just due to background experience and and. You know, where you found yourself, but how would you compare the Azure ecosystem to you know, those of, of Google and, and AWS? Just from your perspective, as a an Azure expert,
2: yeah, well, I'd say AWS has really a lot of good features and a lot of things that Microsoft didn't necessarily copy, but was able to build upon. Um, AWS is really great if you are an open-source uh, developer or an open-source uh, technologist in that Linux is a really strong part of their offering, whether it's our Linux and open the open-source uh, software, whether it's Linux VMs or the LAMP stack, using databases like uh, MySQL and the the uh, abstracted, the PaaS version of that in in AWS is uh, is are really strong offerings, and those systems I think probably scale as well as anything you could get in any of the other platforms. And um, S3 is sort of the go-to probably for a lot of first first tests for companies uh, moving things to the cloud because it's pretty easy to pretty easy to use and pretty easy to get going with. As far as I think you can get just about any open source type of cloud service in AWS. So if you're if you're in that if you're in that world, I think AWS is a pretty clear choice. I think Google is coming along, and I think they're they're really pushing for infrastructure, and I think that's where both. Microsoft's Azure and Amazon's AWS started was at the infrastructure level, making sure that the uh, commodity servers for VMs and running your web hosts and and web processes are the strongest they can be. I haven't really seen what kind of differentiator Google is going to bring to the table, what their specific strings are going to be. Maybe they're going to come out with um, really... Evocative or really um, interesting takes on big data processing. I think when you're when you're at Google scale for doing anything, especially stuff like search, you probably have some insights on how to make things run fast. And I think I think it's Google's BigQuery that is an option for loading up data and running big either MapReduce jobs or some other type of uh, big data analytics jobs there in Google. So it may be that they really separate themselves in um, analytics at scale. Yeah.
1: Okay. So for someone who is just, you know, just starting their, their journey into Azure, what what would you think is the the best advice for someone like that?
2: well i think if you're just starting out figure out something that you know how to do on premise and then go get your once you're prepped get yourself a one month trial and set some stuff up and use it figure out how to work with the azure portal work with the the billing and the 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 provisioning parts of it how to create your services that's that's a really easy way to get your feet wet and Microsoft gives I think it's $150 but maybe $200 in credit per for that first month for uh, new users on Azure so you can you can do that get your feet wet understand what the differences are and how to how to get on and use it a good use case would be something like a sequel database put some data in there um, run the queries, run run a good chunk of data in there and run some big queries and find where the lowest level of SQL database doesn't work for you. Because there's definitely, yeah. you, may, you may scale that service up to a certain point in order to get something that you're, a reliable uh, performance level that you're familiar with. But there are other services that perform at the full speed no matter what like uh, you know, storage accounts and and uh, even event hubs in some cases. You've got quite a lot of bandwidth and performance right there that you may never meet the maximum thresholds for uh, at the level you might be testing yourself. I think mm-hmm. after that, you want to go and look at the pricing structure for everything. Once you, once you know the things that you might want to be using, once you've set them up and understand how they run, then figure out how much they cost and how does Microsoft bill for them and do some estimations on what it's going to cost. Then I think it really com- then it comes back to what's, what's the use case that you can do with these things. Um, I think before you actually start moving things to the cloud, you one need to know what's possible and that's, that's something you do by either jumping in and testing by by reading documentation or by going to conferences. And and one thing that I actually like is is by preparing for exams. Those things give you a broad view of what's available out there and what other people have done. And especially when you're preparing for an exam, you really need to study quite a lot of things and quite a lot of both breadth and depth in order to to pass some of the exams that you've got. So that that gets you ready to advise on what's possible when you then have a use case that could be done on premise or could be done in the cloud or maybe could only be done in one of those places and evaluate if it's possible to do it in both places, what's the cost to move it or if it can't be done apples to apples in both places, is there a way you can do it in the cloud that's different from the way you do it on-premise that you could then gain the benefits of doing it a different way or do that migration and understand what the cost of changing from what your on-premise implementation is to what the cloud implementation is.
1: That oh, Makes perfect sense. So, as we uh, as we wrap up, obviously we um, we were introduced to you through through Manning, and we got access to your book through the uh, Manning Early Access Program. Um, how how important has that been, and how has how has the uh, the meet program you know shaped your book? Have you got some good feedback that uh, made you think twice, or you know redirect things?
2: Yeah, there were several th- bits in the feedback, and that that process of putting it out and hearing from people is is actually, I think, a really neat part of the way that Manning does these uh, this book production. So hearing that either people actually like what you're writing and getting that feedback that you're not totally um, talking to a wall is actually <laughs> really good for an author. Yeah. but also hearing that somebody didn't understand this section or that that section was fine, but I didn't like it. And also actually hearing from different segments of your user base or your reader base that people who are engineers or developers, they might think one thing, people who are um, architects or uh, designers yeah. or scientists might think something else. So you've got different, you know, you've got different uh, populations, different reader groups who might have different opinions. And so, as an as an author, you need to get into who am I writing for and get that really um, tightened down. And also well, develop a bit of a thick skin <laughs> to say. Um, <laughs> that's that's great uh i understand what you're saying and it's i i'm still going to do it this way because this is what i want and this is how i feel i'm best serving the the group that i'm really writing for it's i think it's good to hear that before you actually (laughs) uh, set the book to print
1: (laughs) yeah no, I, I think it's a really nice way to, like any any sort of feedback that you get, you know, the, the right sort of feedback, well, any any feedback you get should allow you to improve in some way, shape or form, even if it's just you deciding that uh, you're going to you know, continue what you're doing. But no, I really enjoyed um, chatting with you and uh, certainly wish you all the, all the best with the, uh, I guess, relatively imminent release of your book.
2: Yeah, I think I've seen it up on Amazon for pre-order. I think uh, June of this year of 2020, I think, was the date that said. So it's it's coming out pretty soon. Yes, I've, Excellent. Uh, we've sent out for the last review, so it should be out soon. <laughs> Great stuff.
1: Well, so thank you very much richard It's been great talking to you about uh, your book and for anyone who's just tuning in at the very end of the podcast i don't know why you would do that that's the the book Azure data engineering um, and uh, so yeah it's been it's been great chatting with you. really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us
2: yeah Dave thanks very much for having me on i I actually really enjoy talking about technology and uh, even outside of the particulars of the book so uh, i'd love to do it again sometime
1: all right great stuff thanks richard so with that thank you richard um you know, interesting alternative view i think to uh sort of the, the way to do data pipelining and just generally data engineering in uh, the world of azure but as as you said at the uh, at the front of the episode you know most of the principles very much applicable to
0: uh, other environments as well yeah, I think it was a nice addition to our usual content because, uh, I mean, we're guilty of being pretty much open source biased, if that's uh, something I can say. We do like open source and we talk a lot about open source. main reason behind that is that there's a lot of information available on open source projects, closed source projects, are a lot harder to get information upon. Uh, but having a guest who has uh, more depth in the semi-closed source environments of a cloud provider, yeah, it, mm-hmm. uh, it's a nice complementary co- content, I think. And of course, as we alluded to at the beginning of this episode, we've got a giveaway. Um, Manning Publications has been very kind and has given us a number of free uh, ebook download codes, which uh, we will hand out to our listeners. Our patrons, as always, already have the information because patrons always get about a week's early warning when we do a giveaway, so they have already all the information they need. If you're a patron and you haven't seen this yet, Go to the Patreon page and do your thing. And for everybody else, if you want to have a chance of winning one of these ebook versions of the Azure Data Engineering book by Richard Nichols, uh, you can send an email to azuredata2020 at roaringelephant.org. That's azuredata2020 at roaringelephant.org. Just uh, ask for the book and be nice and tell us why you would like to have the book. That way we can pass on some uh, feedback perhaps to Richard. It's always useful as well. And with that, I think I'll let Dave take us out of this.
1: Indeed. And remember, don't delay email today. (laughs) And with that, that is all the time we have today. You can support this podcast by becoming a patron. Every contribution helps. We're on YouTube. Like, subscribe, notification bill, all the YouTube things. Please go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page and for more information about this podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag and send your feedback to podcast at RoaringElephant.org Until then, my name is Dave
0: and my name is, I just had my walk down I page of memory lane we look forward to talking to you next week.
1: Bye. See you then.